May 8, 2011, lecture discussion number special request 9, or uh, 1 Samuel 11 or 1 Samuel 31, hopefully 1 Samuel 31. If I don't get to it, though, please uh, look it up on yourselves. It's just one verse that refers to uh, where uh, uh, Jonathan and King Saul and the the sons of King Saul were buried, and that, that of course, connects you back to David. And... um, Ah, this is the special Mother's Day sermon, and um, and as I said just a few seconds ago, before all our sound failed, uh, the question will be asked: Would he really do this on Mother's Day? And and yes, I will. And you'll understand why this doesn't seem to be appropriate to Mother's Day. But as uh, as I said many times, the math is the math, and the order is the order. And I go in order unless it's Christ Mass or First Fruits. And so we left off last week lecture discussion number. Uh, request number eight, special request number eight, uh, and that was the comparison of Judges 19, 20, and 21 with 1 Samuel 11. So let me put that on the board for you. That's what we're doing really today, Judges 19, 19, 20, and 21 with 1 Samuel 11. And I know my writing isn't good. I'm trying to speed up uh, just because of the delay today. So always try to begin to put these two together. I'm going to say to you, I'm going to make the case today, I'll just go ahead and do it, that Judges 19, 20, and 21 is the first half of this, of what we're doing, and this is the second half. And that really doesn't seem like halves to you, but it is. They are two halves to a whole. One seems to be a tremendous amount material, the other seems relatively short, but they actually are two halves to a whole, especially when you add 1 Samuel 31, and then you add what David does when he recovers the bones of Saul after the seven hanged, okay? And buries them with the seven hanged, uh, as you know, the seven being a perfect number, one of the four perfect numbers that you should memorize, three, seven, ten, and twelve. Okay, but what connects it specifically connects the two of them together, Judges 19, 20, and 21, 1 Samuel 11, is Saul cutting apart the oxen and sending the pieces throughout Israel, okay? So we have King Saul with the Spirit of God on him, 1 Samuel 11:6. He repeats the template of Judges 19. In Judges 19, I have a murdered woman cut into pieces. Here we go. Why is this on Mother's Day, right? I have a murdered woman cut into pieces by the Levite master. And so King Saul in 1 Samuel 11 is in the position, he is doing the same thing, but actually in the position, I would be more accurate, of the Levite master in that each cut and sent pieces that caused the nation of Israel to rise up as one and go to war, except the first time they didn't rise up as one, did they? No, the Benjamites were gone. So they rose up as one with the exception of the Benjamites here, but they rose up as one in second, or first, first Samuel 11. And we'll get to that in a minute. And there's a distinction that you have to pay attention to. With Saul, however, he didn't cut up a human being, a murdered wife. He cut up um, an oxen. And the Levite master cut up the murdered wife. And that is something that has to be solved, that difference. All the time when you find things that look like they're the same, notice what's the same, but really notice what's different. Because that tells you that there's, whatever has changed has great significance. But obviously, Judges 19 and 1 Samuel 11 have a relationship. The key elements are present in both. They're kind of on the board here. Uh, I have salvation accomplished in both. 
I have sons of Belial in both. I have weeping in both. I have cutting pieces. I have messengers sent out. I have a, an army raised as one. I have a great war. Three companies. Um, inheritance and salvation accomplished. One consent. If I left those out, I just threw them in again. And with noticing those similarities, we are then proceeded to answer, ask at least, and maybe not answer, but ask at least uh, the obvious questions. And last week I did what? What did I do? I broke with my tradition. What did I do? I actually, I made an infrequent departure. And some might accuse me of, of an unintended lapse because I started providing answers last week. I really did it. And so I try to do it when you least expect it. That's my how to raise attendance idea. How to fund the church, t-shirts and hats, silly phrases like the math is the math, the order is the order, please send your orders in if you're listening. My other way, of course, is to do things that are uncalculable so that uh, you might come and I might actually give an answer. Providing answers, as you know, is so against my tradition. It uh, is not in my thinking or my DNA, if you will. And it's true. I don't like to give answers. You've heard me say it. It's the hand you all a fish thing. I, I, I don't want to hand you a fish. I want to make it an anomaly. I wish for you to fish for yourselves. Uh, I'll give you a map. I'll tell you where the lake and the stream is, but then what will I do? I'll make sure you you got to walk a long way to find that lake, and you got to go over rocks, and you got to climb mountains, and, uh, and and when you get your fishing pole out, it's a $15 Walmart rod and reel, and maybe a two-pound test. That's my plan for you, because I want you to figure it out on your own. It doesn't do me or you any good. That's I, I, not true. It does me a lot of good. I get really good at, uh, or really practiced at this, but that isn't helpful for you. But Lecture 8 was slightly different, and so will today be. I gave answers out last week, and so I'm going to do it again. This is back-to-back, already cleaned, packaged, frozen-free fish. And don't get used to it. But my goal is to wrap this all up today, and yes, I know I've said that before, but this time, it's different. <laughs> I, I actually plan to make it. I hope to make it. Romans is looming, and I want to get to Romans. We need to return back to it because so many things are so cool there that I've got to get to you. Anyway, so expect to conclude 1 Samuel 11, which then is the second half of the two halves, so that will conclude Judges 19, 20, and 21. And all we've got to do is fit in 2 Kings 8, 12 and 2 Kings 15, 16. Let me put those on the board. 2 Kings 8, 12 and 2 Kings 15, 16. What do you suppose those are about? Just take a guess. What's Judges 19 about? Cutting a murdered woman into pieces and causing a war. Oops. Uh, if that if that could be the monitor. Don't touch anything yet, Terry. Let me kill the monitors. Once I kill the monitors, Eric, what does that mean to you? You're going to have to turn them on. 
because I won't remember, will I? Okay, tough day today. Second, First uh, Samuel 11. What did I say? Judges 19. What's it about? A murdered woman is cut up. A war is started. What's First uh, Samuel 11 about? An oxen is cut up and a war is started. What do you suppose Second Kings 8:12 and Second Kings 15:16 is about? Cutting up either an oxen or a woman. In this case, it is, case, it is the cutting up of a woman again. And so we've got to fit those in. Uh, see, it's Elijah and Hazael um, here. Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, makes a prophecy about the king of Syria, Hazael. He's the king of Syria. He tells him what he's going to do. And what he tells him is that uh, he says, he says that, boy, oh boy, I don't know what to do, folks. I'm very sorry. Hopefully that'll stop it. Mute 13 and mute 12, Terry. Mute the guitar in case it's running away and mute the bass in case it's running away. Got it? Thank you. Elijah tells the king of Syria, Hazael, Hazael, and he describes him this way. He's described as a man, as one who will rip open the women of Israel who are with child. That's what he's described as. Second Kings 8.12. And that's something that you should immediately recognize, shouldn't you? I have another case of this happening. Am I good? I'm still functioning. The prophet Elijah tells this man, you are the man who will come into Israel and rip open the women of Israel who are with child. And obviously, Judges 19 Evil is coming again, isn't it? It wasn't totally removed with the Benjamites. It still survived all the way to 2 Kings 8.12. Actually, it survives to when? It survives all the way to Mark 13.17, which is what? That's tribulational. Very good. Obviously, the Judges 19 evil would not be totally removed. Instead, it only abates for a season. And the prophet Elijah sees that Hazael is one who will rip women apart that are pregnant. And he begins this amazing weeping. And so you have this weeping again, this element of weeping in 2 Kings 8.12. And we should expect that. And Hazael asks Elijah, why are you weeping? And Elijah answers, because I know the evil... The evil that you will do. And so there again, the evil is coming again. Coming to Israel once again. I know the evil that you would do, and the evil did indeed come to pass. That's why Second Kings 15.16 is on the board. That's where it is fulfilled. Hazael, the king of Syria, goes into Israel and rips women apart that have are with child. And this is something that repeats and repeats 
women with child ripped open. Hosea 13.16, Mark 13.17. Ask, why is this going on? Hosea 9.9, Hosea 10.9 assigns the Gebeah sons of Belial, if you remember, who surround the house, who refuse the virgin daughter. They are assigned with this evil. That is Hosea 13.16. Hosea 9.9, Hosea 10.9, Hosea 13.16 altogether to tell you that it is the sons of Belial, the Gebeah sons of Belial, uh, who are assigned this exact very evil. And therefore, I submit this, as you know, if I've got this evil at, at uh, Judges 19, and these men surround the house, they refuse the virgin uh, daughter that is offered to them, that's Genesis 19. Well, that's also where else? That's Sodom 19. I'm sorry, Genesis 19, Sodom. And thus, it's obvious to me that the evil was the evil in both places. Does that make sense? The math is the math. The order is the order. Exceedingly great wickedness, God calls it in Genesis 13.13. The outcry is great. The sin, very, very grave. Genesis 18.20. Those are God's words. God is the one saying that the sin is very grave, exceedingly great. What do you think that is? Shoplifting? What is it? And listen, we're doing a lot of evil things in this world today, but we haven't even begun to do what Sodom, Judges 19, Hazael. We have Mark 13, 17. We haven't begun. Are we going to? Oh yeah, we've got all the steps laid down. Let me just ask you today. Are women being ripped open and their babies killed? How many a day? And that's where we are. huh? Cold, hard truth. Sorry. Not really. I'm not sorry. Take sorry. Buy the t-shirt. So that's where we've been We've been in this, in this area, and God would not let it continue. He would come to Sodom and end it. He ended it at Judges 19, and He ends it where it is at 1 Samuel 11. So that's, again, what we've been doing, finally ending up here at 1 Samuel 11, which I need to briefly review for those who missed last week because I have to do that every week. That's part of the problem, part of the process here. That is one of the issues. I used to have somebody tell me, I just need to come to every other sermon at Cliffside, because you repeat half of it almost every Sunday. I have to. If I don't, I lose people. You may say I'm losing people anyway. Well, that's probably true. But nonetheless, it's, it's something that we've realized had to be done just in case so that all of you can be at the same place, on the same bus, the same boat, the same train, wagon, dirigible, insert your own metaphor, but you'll all be at the same place. So I got you all together, and that's what's important. But before I briefly review, I want to briefly insert something that is transitionary. It is uh, getting us prepared for Romans. And I do so like saying briefly. I never mean it, but it sounds so nice, briefly. 
Anyway, you who came last week, or what do we call you? What is the definition of everyone who came last week? The most holy, that's right. So defined as the most holy. You may remember that I brought up this website that's uh, uh, intentionally sarcastic. I brought up www.godhatesamputees.com. You may may remember that. If you weren't here, I'm going to go over it a little bit again just so we all stay together. It's a monistic philosophy website that purports to have unanswerable questions. And they do say the greatest question you can ask is why doesn't God heal amputees? Which, that's very misleading of them, and I believe they know that they're misleading, and they're purposely misleading. I'll say that, and I'll get to that in a minute. But they think that they have logically and rationally defeated all Christian doctrine and disproved it. And so they believe they disproved substance dualism and as well as the existence of a creator God. That is at least what they represent themselves as that, as, and they seem to be quite confident. But I, as I said, I really don't think they believe what they post. I think it is a complete, um, I think they are intentionally doing things they know are not true. And because certainly they have to know that all the premises that they've put up on their website have been repeatedly blown to pieces. They have been, those reasonings, those ideas that they have, have been exposed over and over again as flawed and failed and specious. Actually, very simple, very elementary reasonings. And I believe that they know that what they have put up there has been. Uh, they know that they're doing something that has been uh, completely discredited. So you've got to ask why they would do that. Why would they keep putting out something they know has been annihilated logically by literally anyone or everyone who has taken it on? Um, they have to know it. So why are they doing it? The evidence that they know is that they omit the counterarguments. They don't, they don't bring them up at all. They're not presented. And so their motive for their writings uh, cannot be the pursuit of truth. The agenda lies elsewhere. What do you suppose the agenda is? I submit to you that it's a political group that's doing it. I don't know that, but I submit that it is because in politics you will continue to say something that you know is not true for political advantage. That's really the only group that does that. And so I suspect that it is a political group, and it's clearly uh, atheistic, so that allies it with, uh, with probably the communist movement in some way. I'm sure that if, if I'm not right, that uh, all of the people that, that are there certainly have that political uh, uh, idealism, because communists at their foundation are atheistic, right? So... There, this is a political movement, so don't be uh, overwhelmed by it. It's, it's put there to deceive the illiterate. It's either a vote suppression technique or it is um, um, something else along those lines. Uh, but it certainly isn't, um, it isn't, what's the word I'm searching for? It isn't intended to be taken seriously. But nonetheless, what they provide has some value and that, that they understand the linchpin, as Bill talked about in the, in the uh, offertory. They understand that the linchpin of all of this is the Godhood of Jesus Christ. You see, if Christ is not creator, omniscient God, then they have figured out, unlike the church today, sadly, but they have figured out at www.godhatesamputees.com, 
Bible.com that if Christ is not creator omniscient God, then the Bible is rendered meaningless. And so that's one of their goals, and they get that perfectly, total understanding. They also understand that the creation account of Genesis, Adam's federal headship, the fall of Adam, must be literally true. If it's not, Christ's crucifixion is likewise rendered illogical. They understand that, and I wish today's Revelation 3.16 church would uh, care as much. I said that last week, know as much. Have no position, I keep saying over and over again, have no position that in any way attacks the deity of Jesus Christ. Yes, I asked, I asked uh, Kathy to remind me of a situation that she's involved in. If you have a position that says that Christ is not omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent in any way, he doesn't know something, he can't, uh, he can't deal with something, he doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the ability. Anything. He, if you put that on him at all, you have destroyed Scripture. And the people at www.godhamputees.com, they've got that. So if you have any position, any interpretation of anything in the Bible where Christ is rendered otherwise an omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, then you have done something very destructive. And they get it, but the church today doesn't. That's what's so sad. The atheists, they got it. But not the Laodicean age church. Not the lukewarm. Okay, I want to read a little bit of their material as a preview to where we're going in Romans. Because Romans, we're going to study law. And you may ask, well, how does that fit with this? But you will soon understand how the study of law it figures in. And uh, as you know, I mentioned this as well. Uh, we're going to buy all of you a book and make you read it. And it will make you, you're going to struggle to read it. It's going to be hard. Why didn't I get you an easy book? It is worthless to you to have an easy book. I'm going to get you the hardest book I think you can handle and make you read it. We'll hire people to beat you during the sermon. It's written at a very high level, but it is not beyond any of you, and I will force you to do it. Anyway, let me read this quote uh, from www.godhatesamputees.com. I keep giving them advertising, I know, but it's, it's kind of a cool name. Here's what they say, quote, the whole notion of your soul is completely imaginary. The concept of a soul has been invented because people cannot face their own death. But the concept is a complete fabrication. When you realize that the human body is only a series of chemical processes, chemical reactions, then you realize how completely imaginary your soul is. It is obvious that human beings are only chemical reactions. When the chemical reactions cease, you cease to exist. That is the end of you. How uplifting of them, huh? How filled with hope. Now, coupled with that is their notion that prayer is the same as the lucky horseshoe or a lucky horseshoe. You may wonder, how, how is common monistic uh, thinking coupled with this prayer is the same as a lucky horseshoe? makes perfect sense if you think like a monist. 
I'll quote them again. The perfect equivalence between prayer and lucky horseshoes is undeniable. Both fulfill the definition of superstition. Superstition defined as the belief that events can be influenced by certain acts that have no demonstrable connection to the events. Okay? Those two are related. Those two naturally follow a progression. If I've decided that you do not have the soul, then I decide that prayer obviously is equivalent to a lucky horseshoe. Why would I decide that? What's the relationship between the two? Think about it while I go on. Then they go on, these guys, W, W, W. How many Ws? W, three Ws? Who was it that pointed out that the gematria of, uh, of WWW in the Hebrew is va, 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 or 666? Just, a, I'm kidding about that because I'm sure, I'm sure that, that the internet isn't evil. It's a wonderful learning opportunity. Except the number one thing that's learned there is, uh, well, never mind, it's Mother's Day. I'm already on something I shouldn't be on on Mother's Day. Anyway, www.godhatesamputees.com. They go on to assert that if 1,000 cancer patients were touched and prayed for, and 1,000 cancer patients were also touched by a lucky horseshoe, the survival rate would be statistically identical. And they add that if one million Christians surrounding with earnest concern and hope and faith, praying in unison for one amputee in the middle to be restored whole, that that amputee would not be restored. And then they say that excuses would follow. Not enough faith. The amputee did not have enough faith or the one million praying Christians did not have enough faith. They would bring up Mark 11, 23, and 24. If you don't know what's there, read it now. Don't have time to do it. Then they would say, oh, you'll say, don't test God. That the request is too trivial for God. The hands of the prayers weren't clasped tight enough. They didn't pray hard enough. You would have excuse after excuse in order to deal with Mark 11, 23 through 24. It would never happen and has never happened. Go get your million Christians. Get your one amputee. Try it. It won't happen. And thus they're mocking title, right? Because God doesn't do it, so therefore God must what? He must hate the amputees. He won't ever restore one. That's their logic. And finally, they add that every pastor who says that tithing to his church will cause God to answer your prayer should be arrested as a fraud. That's criminal fraud. Let me repeat that. Every pastor who says that if you will tithe to our church or to me, I'm on television, i got an envelope in my hand. If you just send me some money, that could be your envelope. Send it to me. I'll open it. If there's good enough money in it, that prayer will be answered. Every pastor that does that, they say, 
are, is committing criminal fraud and should be arrested. And that is something that I completely agree with them on. They are right about that. Pastors who do that are indeed frauds, and they are everywhere. And they do not believe something, every one of them. They do not believe that God is omniscient. They do not, or they would not do that. But you can't stop them, can you? Turn on your TV tonight. They'll be there. With their purple hair and their purple chairs telling you how blessed you would be if you just send them money. That is criminal fraud. Okay, let's just briefly deal with this. First, it's true, by the way, your body is, our bodies are, in fact, physical. They are chemical reactions and they are chemical processes. That's all correct, isn't it? But your soul, our souls, are not chemical. They have no chemical relationship to the physical body at all in the sense that they're each physical or they're each chemical. Our souls are supernatural. This is what's called radical or substance dualism. Radical dualism meaning that somehow the metaphysical soul impacts the physical body. And everybody goes, well, that can't be true. How can a non-physical uh, element uh, affect a physical element? Well, you can think yourself sick. Ask any teenage boy girlfriend broke up with him. Make himself physically sick. Ask any athlete what they've got to do to get themselves... Ask anyone who gets depressed what they can do to themselves physically. Your mind, your non-physical mind, can't affect your physical body. How's that process done? In any event, our souls are supernatural. They're non-physical. They're made up of non-chemical processes. Our souls are comprised of spiritual materials and spiritual processes. What's the obvious question? I ask it all the time. Where does the spiritual material come from? Where is the supernatural material? How is the supernatural material transmitted into the physical body? We are never called by Scripture. We are never called by God a body. He never calls us a body. He always calls us the same thing. He always calls us a living soul. You were never identified as a body. Your essence, your, your, your self-awareness, your qualia, if you will, your being is spiritual. And he refers to you that way. Nefesh kaya. You've heard me say it thousands and thousands of times. Did you immediately say, when I made the comment that they quote or quoted them, did you immediately say, well, that's okay that my body is a chemical process and dies? There's no impact on my non-physical soul. How does prayer relate to that? Prayer is a what? A non-physical process. It's a spiritual process. It's not a physical process. Prayer is for the renewing of the mind. It is for spiritual communication to God. Who's what? How does He define Himself? Spirit. Prayer is utilized as a means to place ourselves in harmony with God's will. Notice how I said that. Harmony with God's will. Our will transforms to be in step with His will. That solves your Matthew problem. Okay. <coughs> Matthew 15, 30-31. Let me read this for you. Then great multitudes, great multitudes, what's the obvious question? 
How many is in a great multitude? A great multitude came to Him. A great multitude came to Jesus Christ, God, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, and the maimed, and many others. What's the obvious question there? Let me repeat it. The lame, the blind, the mute, and the maimed. A great multitude of them came. How many is a great multitude? I'm going to tell you, there's two, three million people in the area. A large city. We can prove that by the waste disposal sites that we found, the garbage dumps and the cemeteries. We know there's a lot of people crammed in this space. And a great multitude came to see Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. 100,000? 200,000? Could He feed them all? Yeah, He didn't have any problems with that either, did He? And they brought the lame and the blind and the mute and the maimed. What's the obvious question? The the most obvious of the obvious questions. What is the difference between lame and maimed? What's the difference? And many others, it said. And He healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the tongues cut out people speak, the amputees made whole, the crippled walking, and those without eyes given new eyes. I kind of helped you understand that passage by adding that in. I retranslated that last part. See, what's the difference between lamed and maimed? Lame, you still got something. What do you got? You still got the leg. Maimed, you don't have the leg or the arm or the ear, or the nose, or the eyes, or the tongue. And by the way, maimed by who? Who maimed all these guys, or women? Who maimed them? Opposing military armies, that's right. And they did it in battle and in war. It's very common. They cut their eyes out. That, by the way, is going to happen here in 1 Samuel 11, right? They cut their eyes out. And then they cut their tongues off. They cut their arms off. And then they'd send these wounded men babbling and screaming and bleeding back to their own forces where they had to deal with these guys. They had to deal. Imagine the shock of that. That went on all the way in this country. That was, you know, George Armstrong Custer. What was the motto of the 7th Cavalry? Cavalry, sorry. Save the last bullet for yourself, baby. That was the Apache, the people that fought the Apaches and the Comanches. Those were brutal wars on both sides. Think of the psychology of that. Your buddy comes back with no eyes, tongue cut off, ears and nose cut off, arms cut off. How you feel? You ready to fight? That was common practice all the way into the 19th century. There was no Geneva Convention there. I'm fascinated that we have discussions on torture. It fascinates me. You see what real torture was, what humans will do to other humans. Anyway, what did Jesus Christ, God, do to every single one of them that was brought before Him? This great multitude. He healed every single eyes. How do you make eyes? He told you how he makes eyes. Spits in the dirt, rolls a ball, sticks it in. It's an eye. 
new tongues, grows tongues, grows arms, grows legs, and the great multitude marveled when they saw the mute speak, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing. That's what he did, Matthew 15, 30 through 31. What's the obvious question? That would have shocked www.godhatesamputees.com, wouldn't it? Maybe they wouldn't have that as their. Do they know about Matthew 15, 30, and 31, by the way? Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they know. They know what's in there. They don't care. They think the church is dumb enough to be fooled by them. Are they right? Oh, yeah. yeah. The largest collection of suckers in the world are probably in the church pews. We should be the wise, and we are the most easily taken. Every scam that comes along. I don't know why. I don't know why. Part of it is a misunderstanding of Mark 11, 23, and 24. Part of it is that. But why isn't this happening today is the obvious question. Why don't we have guys in white suits with mirrors on the outside so that when they shine the lights on them, they look like they're glowing, and a whole bunch of people who are paid to fall down, how come those guys and the people that are paid to fall down, did you really think they were falling down on their own? I hope not. They're paid to fall down, for goodness sake. It isn't hard. Twenty bucks a piece, free pizza. It's kind of our plan to grow the church. That's only half a joke. The only thing wrong with that joke is it isn't as funny as it should be. Okay, but why isn't this happening today? Why aren't these scam artists able to grow limbs and spit in the dirt and make eyes? How come they can't do that? How come they don't try it? It's never happened. How come they never go to hospitals where I've got MRI machines and x-ray machines and cat scans. How come they don't go to hospital? You never see a healer go to a hospital, have you? I've got people working in hospital. Any healers come by? No. How come? Why isn't this happening today? Why isn't this being duplicated? Who can do this? Who can grow an arm where arm isn't bent? Who can make an eye? Who can make a tongue? Only God can do this. And that is the ultimate point. It is evidence of the Godhood of Jesus Christ. And the people that write that article or write that website, they know all about Matthew 15, 30, 31. They're gambling that the church knows nothing. So far, they're doing pretty good. Last point on this for today. But this fits into Romans. So you know, this is where we're going really soon. As soon as the books come in. Four scientifically inexplicable things. The origin of the creation of the universe. So it's the same thing. The origin of the creation and the origin of the universe. Can't be explained scientifically. Cannot be explained the created order. Space, time, energy, and matter. Cannot be explained. The origins of laws. There's your Romans. Think of a law. The law of what? Give me a law. Where did it come from? The law of gravity. The law of probability. Where did it come from? Where did these laws come from? Velocity. Just to name a few. 
cannot be explained. The origin of laws and the origins of life cannot be explained. And then finally, the fourth one, the origin of the mind. Science must deal with the implication of its inability, implications of its inability to explain. And really, science doesn't explain anything, by the way. Science attempts to describe things. That's what science does. Okay? Now, on to briefly covering the questions that arose out of 1 Samuel 11. So here we go. 1 Samuel 11. We're starting the sermon now. How come you waited so long to start the sermon? That's what you're asking. The answer is because I had to end it today. And I was going to end it very briefly. That's my plan. Okay, who was not here last week that has a good excuse besides the Swansons? Talia, you were not here. You were not here. Okay, three or four of you that are not here. Pat was not here. Okay, so let's let's go back and remember. You listen to the sermons on the CD, don't you, Talia? And that's why we call you the almost most holy. Almost is, is not bad. So you'll know this. But remember, for those of you who weren't here, Nahash has come to Jabesh-Gilead. That's the remnant of the city slaughtered in Judges 21 because they wouldn't do what? Jabesh wouldn't come up to Mizpah and take the oath that they wouldn't give daughters to the Benjamites. So because they didn't do that and because there's only 600 Benjamites left, the uh, nation of Israel said, go and slaughter the ones that wouldn't come to Mizpah, that wouldn't take the oath, oath and, and kill all of them, but get, get as many virgin daughters as you can. And there turned out to be 400 virgin daughters that survived the massacre, and they were given to the Benjamite survivors. And this city now is composed of their descendants, and Nahash has come to that city, and Nahash has besieged it. He, has, he is starving it out, and as soon as he takes uh, uh, Jabesh Gilead, he's going to Gebeah because he knows those are plum for picking. Those are the two cities that got wiped out in Judges 19, 20, and 21. So that's why he's there. He has a plan. He knows they are vulnerable. What makes him think they're vulnerable? Said so last week. He's convinced that Israel won't protect them. They're the hindmost, right? Clean them out. So let's read, uh, I'll read it again, Samuel 11, 1 through 4. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. They know he can slaughter them. They know they got no chance. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I'll make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and this is the key, and bring reproach on all Israel. I am going to insult all Israel, and thereby insult you, the God of Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, give us seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is none to save us, we will come out to you without a fight and get our eyes cut out. If we're lucky, it's just one eye. Probably an arm too, right? Probably an arm too, because he doesn't want them to be what? Doesn't want them to be soldiers. So that means every male loses an eye for sure, and probably a right arm. 
So you're going to march out of that city with your sons, infant children, and watch them get mutilated. How many are going to survive it? What do they got to do? They got a surgeon there? No, what do they got? They got a guy with a cleaver and a spoon, a sharpened spoon. How do you like to be fourth in line? How about number 2,800? It isn't going to be good. And Nahash, so then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel and then if there is none to save us, we will come out to you. And he agrees to that. Because he's sure of what? Ain't nobody coming, boys and girls. You mind. I know they're not coming. So the messengers went first, that's what I think, went to Gebeah of Saul. They went right to Gebeah because what's happening next? Gebeah's next. No one's going to come and save Gebeah either. Read your Judges 19, 20, and 21. No one's coming to save these people. They were almost both exterminated as it was. So the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept, knowing it was for them next. Okay, and then Saul cuts an oxen into pieces. He gets really angry and he cuts this oxen into pieces and he sends the oxen pieces out. And Israel does something that is unforeseen by Nahash. They rise up as one again and Nahash and his army are routed and Jabesh is saved. And the key question or the most obvious of the obvious questions is why did Saul cut apart an oxen. How did he think of that, by the way? What made him think of that? It says, let me help you. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul. Certainly King Saul knew as he's doing this that it was going to be a reminder to the nation of Israel of the catastrophic events of Judges 19, 20, and 21. He had to know As soon as I'm doing this, I am the Levite master. The oxen is in the place of the murdered wife. And we're doing Judges 19 all over again. And what happened there? All of Israel, when they got those pieces and those messengers would come, I could just imagine, hi, I'm a messenger from Jabesh Gilead. We're surrounded by Nahash. Uh, We went to Saul. He tore an oxen in half. Here's a piece. Here's his message. By the way, we saw him do it. How big is an ox? The Spirit of God came upon him. And Saul understood this. All of Israel would remember the murdered wife of the Levite master, the sons of Belial. Uh, all of Israel would remember the previous slaughter of Jabesh Gilead and, and Gebeah. All of Israel would remember the three-day battle. Saul knew that. It was purposed. The cut oxen caused Israel to fear the Lord, it says, and they all came with one assent. Everybody came. What I said it was remarkable, and you'll read commentaries that actually cut, they get mad at Judah. Judah only came with a, about 30,000 troops. No. Judah was massacred. The fact that they came at all, they're coming because they're coming. They got another 30,000. Here they come. 35,000, whatever they got. Here they come again. What do they think is going to happen to them? 
They're going first again. I said it like Judah goes first. I, I, a movie that affected me was Glory. Civil War, true story. African American regiment that went first. And they knew something was going to happen to them. They're all dead. That's an incredible story. Men that would do that. But here's Judah coming first. Nahash's goal is to bring reproach on all Israel and that would be met by the Spirit of God. What do you think Nahash means, by the way? Just take a guess. What does this mean? This means sons of Satan, sons of Belial. What do you think Nahash means? Come on, you can do it. It means serpent. You would expect that, wouldn't you? Nahash means serpent. The serpent has come and he's besieged the city. But how exactly did the pieces of oxen rally Israel to fight? How did this message Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it stop there. So it I did a whole sermon on it one time. I think I did ten sermons on it. I can't remember it was a long time ago. And it was in italics. I still didn't bother me. I still went for it. I got a real it here. How long can I go on it? Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. What's the obvious question? We know the oxen was cut apart, but what exactly is it? I submit that it must have a relationship to who? To the murdered wife in Judges 19. And then therefore to Sodom. And therefore to the tribulation. Mark 13:17 and to Hosea 9:19 and Hosea 13:16 and 2 Kings 8:12 and 2 Kings 15:16 all that's got to fit together the cutting into pieces is not the it in my my opinion the cutting into pieces is the evidence of the it what he did to the oxen would be done to their oxen and here's the evidence of it as with Judges 19. And the it causes the fear of the Lord to fall on the people, and they came out with one consent. Everyone came this time. And the serpent had come to Jabesh. And the people at Jabesh are given a Passover pattern, seven days. They request a seven, a Passover pattern. Good for them, and they get it. And Nahash is so sure, so certain that Israel, that God will not intervene, that he grants it. He is so sure that Jabesh will be taken without a struggle and maimed and placed into slavery. So when Satan takes you, you are you're you're blinded and you're cut and you're placed into slavery and then he moves on to Gebeah. But Saul takes oxen and rips them and sends the pieces, cuts twelve pieces, and sends the pieces with messengers. And a call is given to Israel. A call is given. And the nation of Israel responds. And salvation is accomplished. Uh, verse 13 of First Samuel 11. And all of the nation responds to the call. And none fight this time on the side of who? 
They don't fight on the side of the sons of Belial. They don't fight on the side of the serpent this time. All of them fight against the serpent. None of Israel would face extermination this time. And the serpent would be wrong. There would be no reproach. Now, put all the elements together. The threat, the warning is this. If you don't come up as one against the serpent who blinds and maims and enslaves, your oxen will be ripped open. Who will go through Israel ripping open everybody's oxen? Who's going to do that? Ever ask that question? Who can do it? Saul. He seems to have the ability to do it. But he doesn't say it's just going to be him. Who else does he say coming with me? Whoever doesn't go out to battle with Saul and Samuel. He had a lot, a lot of oxen to tear apart, doesn't he? How's he going to do that? He is one man. How's he going to make good on this threat? He is one man against thousands and thousands. But it is Samuel and Saul. It is the priest and the king. And obviously the people of Israel looked upon the pieces of oxen and knew immediately something had happened. What did they know immediately had happened? They looked upon the pieces of the woman and they knew immediately that Satan was involved. They knew a great evil had happened. They looked at the pieces of the oxen and they knew who was involved in this. God was involved. It was a sign that God was involved. They knew that Saul couldn't do this. No one could do what he did. And any tribe that did not come would be subject to famine, wouldn't they? Their ability to labor. Could God kill oxen? Their ability to see, see the Pharaoh's problem. Their ability to labor in the field would be ended. So they couldn't, they would be subject to starvation. Think about this now. Apply it how? Find yourself. Make the personal application. Make the spiritual application, if you will. They would be subject to famine if they didn't come up. They would, their ability to labor in the field would be ended. Their ability to harvest would be ended. God would remove them from service unless they came up. Now put Judges 19 with 1 Samuel 11. Judges 19 is about what? 1 Samuel 11 is about what? It is Romans and James, isn't it? It is Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. Right? Did I give you the fish? Maybe. At least got to take it out of the wrapper. It's all wrapped up for you. Let's rise and be dismissed.